0: Thanks, Wally. Um, As we move uh, into our teaching time this morning, I do want to ask a question. And that is, uh, how many of you would describe yourself as rule followers? Some of you are very good rule followers. Okay. How many of you would say you're more like on the rule breaker or rule bender spectrum? Okay. Oh, look at that. Some of you in your marriages are very evenly balanced in this. Excellent. Well, um, we are too. In our home, my wife, Meg, is a rule follower. She loves to color inside the lines. She admits freely she could live in a police state with no consternation whatsoever, Um, no disruption on her life. But me, on the other hand, uh, well, not so much. I'm less inclined. So I'll give you an example of that. Uh, When... When we hire someone at Jericho, one of the things that we walk them through is a a work style uh, analysis called a Berkman. Uh, And a Berkman is a very sophisticated psychoanalytical tool that uh, asks for a lot of information on how much, what do you need in supervision, what kind of an environment do you need to really succeed well in, how much structure, all of those types of, of things. And so when I had mine done, and all of our staff have them. When I had mine done, I met with a facilitator, and he started the time off by saying, hmm, this is very unusual. And uh, I, th- I think that's never the best way to begin those types of things. And I asked, well, what's so unusual about it? And he said, well, let me put it this way. He said, everyone I know that has your type of a profile is in prison, (laughs) they're all incarcerated, so I'm curious as to how you went into ministry and not into jail, how this happened for you. And so we began to kind of uh, process that a little bit together, and the reason for that observation of people with my personality think that rules are great for other people to follow. But we prefer to forge our own path, which can be entrepreneurial and healthy in some ways, but and in some ways it can get you into trouble as well. So that would be the time when my fellow rule benders would say, amen, right? <clears throat> and pray for Meg, she says. So we're currently in a teaching series here at Jericho called uh, Your Kingdom Come. And in this series, we're tracing the theme in the scripture of the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God like? And where do we see it and how do we participate in it and live our lives in accordance with it? And we've explored together the notion that kingdoms, whether it's the kingdom of Denmark, whether it's the kingdom of God, they have some shared characteristics. So there's a ruler. They have territory. They have armies. They also have rules or laws by which the kingdom operates, which is our topic today. What are the rules, what are the laws that would govern the kingdom of God and our participation in it? And I find that when I'm talking to people about Christianity, oftentimes they have an immediate mental image of Christians. And above all else, that image usually centers on Christians being a bunch of rule followers And they tell me things like, well, basically, the Bible is like a list of fun stuff that you're to tell me that I'm not supposed to do. And then if I do any of those things, you get Christians get very upset with me. And anyone who doesn't follow the rules, like they interpret and follow the rules. Have you encountered this in your conversations with people? And to be fair, as Christians, I think we should own that, we did kind of earn that reputation fair and square because for most of the 20th century, vast swaths of the Christian movement in North America were caught up in rule-following orientation called fundamentalism. And when fundamentalism goes slightly off, it begins to overemphasize the rules and rule-keeping. And very subtly but quickly, it can become dry and dogmatic, which we would call legalism. And some of you may have grown up in a religious culture like that. But part of the story of the Christian movement in the 20th century is that as we came to the end of the 20th century, some people began to sort of walk away from fundamentalism and came as refugees to a new land. And there may still be some uncertainty as to what to call this new land, And there's lots of arguments about that. But in this brave new world, which, by the way, isn't really new at all. We've seen these types of patterns in church history before. Some of those who left fundamentalism began to embrace and describe a new topography. And they began to use the language of the kingdom of God to describe it. And so they would go to places like Matthew chapter 5, and they would say things like, you know what Jesus is really all about is not rules and laws, but Jesus is about helping people who are poor in spirit embrace their need for God. They would say things like, well, what Jesus is all about is humility and justice. What the kingdom of God is really all about is working for peace, and what defines us is is not the rules that we follow, but the way in which we love. And so we get people writing a lot of books and blogging about how Christians should be defined by these types of phrases and following our hearts and loving people. And all of these things are true. Those are all drawn right from the text of Matthew chapter 5. But there's something that sometimes happens in this conversation. And that is that there's other elements as we leave behind fundamentalism that begin to get de-emphasized that are actually also important to bring with us on our journey. And that's something we're going to explore together over the next couple of weeks. And so David McFarland and Tyler Harper and others are going to be jumping in on this conversation because the concern that I have is the follow your heart crowd sometimes overlooks the rest of Matthew chapter 5, which contains the Sermon on the Mount, but also contains Jesus' very strident words on a whole cluster of ethical issues or rules or laws. In Matthew 5, actually contains quite a lot of rules and laws, very stringent ones, ones that are very hard, laws about loving your enemy. Laws about not taking revenge. Rules about keeping your word, even when it's difficult. Rules about remaining faithful to your spouse. Rules about sexual purity and lust. Rules about anger and controlling it. So the first part of Matthew chapter 5, if we stop reading after verse 10 or 11, that sounds, that's great, but we miss the rest of What Jesus is saying. Because the rest of the chapter, it has a lot of thou shalt nots in it. And so we have to wrestle with the what do we do with that? Especially since in my Bible, Matthew chapter 5 is in red letters, which means that Jesus said it. It means that this is Jesus' teaching. So go there with me, Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at verses 17 to 20 this morning. Because... One of the images that's become very common in our day, and that I hear a lot, is that Jesus came to get rid of all of these silly rules and just start something fresh and new. And the announcement and the inauguration of the kingdom of God meant by Jesus in His reign, in His ministry, in His earthly life, meant that all of those silly rules from the Old Covenant or from the Old Testament are just finished and done with those Old Testament laws. We just need to get rid of those and start something fresh. The kingdom has only one law, the law of love. And it's a good question, and we have to really wrestle with what is Jesus teaching us about what to do with these rules and laws. And so turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. And this is immediately following the Sermon on the Mount, immediately following Jesus talking about what does it mean to be uh, a witness, to live on mission, and be salt and light in a world that needs to know and hear about his love. And then Jesus says this in verse 17, do not misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish, to do away with the law of Moses or the writing of the prophets, No. I came to accomplish or to fulfill their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, until the kingdom of God comes in full fruition, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So, if you ignore the least or the smallest commandment, And you teach others to do the same. You will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness or your obedience to the law is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is continuing his teaching around what it means to be in right relationship with God as we walk and think about the Beatitudes and recognize that the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then he continues by saying, you know, let's talk about what it means to participate in the kingdom. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, was Jesus a rule releaser? Did Jesus come to say, you know what, these are the rules that you should follow, these are the rules you shouldn't follow anymore? And so in his own words here, Jesus describes his relationship with the law and the prophets or the Old Testament. And Jesus says that he came to be the fulfillment of the law. Verse 17, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law or Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. So again, some people look at this and think, oh, great, Jesus is here, out with the old, in with the new. He's going to take those silly Old Testament laws. He's just going to like a container that had some water in it. He's just going to dump that out and he's going to start filling the bucket with fresh stuff. We can get rid of it. But Jesus says the exact opposite here. He actually says, yeah, the bucket is, has some content in it already. And when I have come now, I'm actually going to fill that bucket to full and overflowing. It's contents of the law and the prophets is partially full. Jesus came to fill up, not pour out. He says he's come to accomplish the purpose that God gave Forgiving us the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying he's not interested in altering, replacing, nullifying former commands. But as one commentator notes, he is interested in establishing their true intent and their purpose in his teaching. And he accomplishes or fulfills them through his obedient life. Jesus is the fulfillment, not the nullification of the law. And the Old Testament and the prophets. But part of this is rooted in a clear understanding of why did God give the law in the first place? What's the purpose of the law? And the New Testament helps us understand a few very key purposes that God gave rules and instructions for. And one of them is to, in Romans 3, make us keenly and clearly aware of our shortcomings. Paul spends a lot of discussion on this in Romans chapter 3. In verse 19, he says, The purpose of the law is to keep people from having excuses, to make it clear, and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. There's none that is right enough on their own standing. No one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply is there to show us how sinful we are. Now, if we take it out of the context of the Old Testament and think about even our laws here in the country that we live in, that makes sense to us. If there's no law around how fast I can drive, no one has any business pulling me over and telling me I'm going too fast on any given road. If there's no speed limit, there's no accountability to road safety. There's no capacity or need to hold anyone to account. And this is the case in many developing countries. I often chuckle, When our friends from Tanzania come here, and I ask them what their observations on Canada are, and they say, you know, it's just amazing. Everyone stops when the light turns red. How do you get people to do that? (laughs) And then when the little person comes and says, you can walk across the street... People wait for the little person to come on before they actually go out into traffic. This is revolutionary to them. They can't believe how efficient things are when they follow the rules. And so this is the other aspect that Paul drives at in Romans chapter 3, that the law not only has a negative purpose to make us clearly aware of our shortcomings and to therefore call us to account, and to keep us from doing wrong, but it also has a positive purpose, and that is to guide us and to shape us. The same argument could be made uh, around speed limits on roads, to pick on that again. The roads have engineers, the ones who design the roads, and they know things about it, like where they put the curve in the road, And so if there's a complete absence of signage or speed limits that you and I don't know, and we just drive however we want on the road, the engineers are saying, no, 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 you don't understand. This road is not intended for you to drive on it in that way. There's a curve or a hill or something that's going to create problems for you. I know the grade of the hill. I know the pitch or the cadence of a given curve. And so the engineers give us the gift of limits to help not only point out where we're wrong, but more importantly, to help guide us into wisdom. And the same thing is true of God's laws. God gave us laws to guide us into wise living. And this is really the purpose that God's given us things to understand and rules in the kingdom. They're there to lay out for us what it means to be in right relationship with God and others and to flourish as human beings. I've been struck by this this last week in our life journaling as we've been going through the Psalms. And in Psalm 111, as we were reading it this last week, it says, How gracious and merciful is our Lord. All of His commandments are trustworthy. They are forever true. They are to be obeyed faithfully and with integrity. Why? Because all who obey His commands grow in wisdom. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to be known as a person who's growing in wisdom? Then follow God's laws and decrees. This week in our Bible reading, we're coming into Psalm 119, longest chapter in the whole Bible. So it gets split up into a couple of days, just to be fair. And it's, this whole chapter is going to be devoted to helping us understand the benefits of following God's laws laws and rules. So you can just uh, track along with that in the app or you can get a bookmark at the Welcome Center and that'll help track you through our reading plan together at Jericho. So the purpose that God gave us the laws and gave his people in the Old Testament the laws was to guide them into wisdom. But back to our question. Was Jesus a rule releaser? Because did Jesus give us any differing definitions or differing vision of how we should live? Should we just follow our hearts or follow Jesus? Or is there something else that should guide us, something that guided Jesus in his own life? So we came to see already in Matthew 5, 17 that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law. But in, G- in Matthew 5, 18, it says that Jesus also affirmed the continuity of, of the law. Matthew 5:18 Jesus says I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear not even the smallest detail of God's law is going to disappear until its purpose is achieved. So one day there will be a day when the kingdom of God is fully realized and we will not have need of the rules and the laws that God has given us anymore because our relationship with God as king will be so perfect and face-to-face, we will not need a set of rules to guide us into how to live with wisdom. But today is not that day. We're still living in a time when we understand and look, as Paul says to us in First Corinthians 13, darkly through a glass. And so we're still living in a time when the rules and instructions that God gave us have a clear purpose, and not even the smallest detail of it gets erased or chucked out until the purpose that God gave it to us for, is accomplished. Now, in some of the older English translations of the Bible, like the King James Version, they used a phrase to capture this idea. Matthew 5.18 in the King James Version says, not even the smallest jot or tittle of the law will pass until all of the law Has been fulfilled. Now, these are not terms that we use every day. Jot is the small, it's the tenth and the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a tittle is the smallest part of the smallest letter. It's like the dot on the lowercase i. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is don't mess around with God's laws and rules, and start just chopping things out that you don't necessarily love or agree with. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 19, and this fall we're going to be teaching through the book of Revelation, uh, the apostle expresses it this way and says, don't remove anything from this book of prophecy. But we still have to wrestle with a question, and that is, okay, Does that mean then, if we can't remove or talk about the removal of jots or tittles from the law, that all of the things in the Old Testament law still apply or are in full force to every single person today? You might say, Well, Brad, I've tried to read the book of Leviticus, and some of it is boring, but some of it is like very specific. Don't eat shellfish don't wear clothing made from two types of materials. So if I wear a shirt that has some polyester and some cotton in it, does that mean I'm sinning and in violation of God's will for my life? Everyone's checking their labels and going, what what shirt did I wear this morning? Now, on Friday, I was thinking about uh, this, and as I was watching the hockey parents come in and out of the rink where our office is down on Mufford Crescent, One dad came out with his tribe, and he had this shirt on. And it was right when I was at this stage of my prep. And his shirt said, Jesus loves me and my tattoos. Referencing Leviticus, of course, where it talks about you should not get a tattoo. So questions like this still have to be addressed. Like, so if I have a tattoo, does Jesus still love me? Or am I somehow sinning flagrantly by inking my body in some way? So in order to get at this... And more complicated questions like, what do we do with things like slavery or war or treatment of women in the Old Testament? We have to wrestle with the question like, do all of the things in the Old Testament, do all of the laws in the Old Testament apply for us today? And the short and potentially unhelpful answer is yes and no. (laughs) So what we need to figure out, though, is to try and wrestle with what is, the, what is the Old Testament doing in any particular law or particular instance? And then what happens as we trace that throughout Scripture? So, for example, if you look at food laws and restrictions, if we go right back to the beginning in Genesis, and you look at what did God command? He said, only vegetables. No meat, don't eat any of that stuff. So then we go through this whole period of transition, and then by the time we get to Moses... We have God commanding and opening the door and saying to people, okay, vegetables and certain types of meat that are clean or that are respectable and that you can use. And then we get into the New Testament, we get the New Covenant, and we have vegetables and clean, and we have now new categories, unclean meats that were prohibited in the Old Testament, yet now in the New Testament, we we have discussions about, should we be allowed to eat pork? What about other things? And again, this is a nuanced discussion, which we don't have time to go into every aspect of it today, because then even there, there's some restrictions saying, hey, don't eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and be attentive to the fact of other people around you have very deep convictions about these things. And so, what I want to point out by just Tracing that particular instance through is that in the text of Scripture itself, we see this sense of unfolding through time a shift in the way that those specific laws are to be followed. And so, in certain areas, we see a progression in revelation. The way that our confession of faith as Mennonite brethren unpacks this is to say God's revelation in history could be considered progressive. Yet, the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament is one of the more difficult questions believers face in the interpretation of the Bible. So, we have God speaking at different points and moments in history to different groups of people in ways that they could understand, but also in ways and with laws that may not have aligned with the fullness of God's revelation, which we see in Jesus. But again... We have to hold this intention with the fact that Jesus doesn't come and say, hey gang, I'm new on the scene here, you've heard all this stuff, just ditch it. Get rid of all that Old Testament laws. The one who's the son set free is free indeed, you can do whatever you want. Jesus doesn't just dump out the old covenant. He says, I have come to fill it up, to fulfill it. And so we have to be careful that unless a law or a rule is done away with in the New Testament, or we see a trajectory of revelation that we can trace out clearly, such as with foods that we can't eat, then we should assume that that law is still in effect. Don't kill, no coveting, don't be greedy, be generous, Don't be gluttonous, be wise for how you care for and steward your physical bodies and also the earth, like all still in effect, all on the books still, so to speak, with tattoos. Another example about that in the time that that was written to people in Leviticus, the only reason that you would have a tattoo was to identify yourself with a pagan deity and be one that says, I've devoted my life to that. And so God tells his people there, hey, tattoos, bad idea, because that's going to mark and identify you as worshiping some other God. So don't ink yourself, please. Now, no one presently assumes in our culture that if you have a tat that you worship Satan. And so, yes, Jesus can love you and your tattoos. It's a complicated subject, though. And we have to be careful about taking it too far in areas where there's a clear boundary established by Scripture places like sexuality or other things. So again, we can't go into all kinds of topics, but I give you a few examples there just to help us understand the tension that we have to work through and live in with this notion of what do we do with some of the laws that we find in the Old Testament. Because Jesus affirms not only that he's the fulfillment, he affirms not only the continuity of the law, but thirdly, Jesus affirms the completeness of the law. So he says, hey, if you ignore the least commandment and you're going to go around teaching other people to do the same, that's not okay. In other words, there's a unity to the law of God. We don't get to ignore some commands and say, you know what? That one's just, it's not a big deal to God. It's a small one. So go ahead and break that one as long as you want. So long as you don't murder anybody, you're okay, right? But listen to the strength of the language that Jesus uses here. It's not your law. You don't get to make those kinds of calls. And this is true in any kingdom, whether in the kingdom of Denmark or the kingdom of God. If you break the law, evading, paying taxes, or if it's vehicular manslaughter, you're still a lawbreaker. And so the thing with the rules is to be careful by personal selectivity in the laws that we like or don't like or we find easy or difficult to obey that sometimes we can weaken what God intended for our protection. Do not weaken what God intended for your protection because you and I don't get to sit in judgment and decide which rules we get to keep conveniently and which to break. Because Jesus is saying here, the law is a cohesive unit. It's a whole. The laws of God are not like a buffet that you go down the line and say, oh, I really like this one. Oh, that one, it's too spicy for me. I'll just let that one pass. The laws are a cohesive unit. Scholar and author Dr. Craig Keener in his excellent commentary on Matthew puts it this way, God does not allow us the right to say, oh, I will obey his teaching about murder, but not the teaching on adultery or fornication. Or I'm going to obey the teaching about theft, but not about divorce, to refuse the right of the king to rule in any of our ethics or behavior is to deny his lordship. You don't get to go through the Bible and say, oh, I really like these instructions Jesus tells us about loving people. I'm going to keep that one. But the stuff about truth-telling, the stuff about generosity, I'm not so excited about that if you ignore the least of these commandments and teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And you don't want that. I don't want that for you, and you don't want that. When we come to the last verse in our little section this morning, so we've seen that God, uh, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the law. He affirms the continuity of the law. He affirms the completeness, the unity of the law. And lastly, Jesus highlights the deficiencies Of the law. He lays it out and says, you know what, there's some things that the law cannot do. And this, the law comes with warnings or challenges built into it. In the last verse, verse 20, Jesus says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better, higher, Stronger than that of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, and these were two groups who were very, very focused on getting the laws right and following them very, very fastidiously. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is not saying here that you should try harder to be a better rule keeper than these groups did, and they just weren't, their hearts weren't in it enough and you should ratchet it up a notch above what they did. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees were absolutely scrupulous about keeping the law. On finances, this was a group of people who tithed down to the percentage of their herb gardens and seeds. Like, they were serious about rules and keeping them. But what Jesus is saying then is getting into the kingdom of heaven does not happen by out rule-keeping other rule followers because the question will always be am I doing it good enough am I keeping enough of the rules how good is good enough have I done 51% good stuff and 49% bad things in my life oh I'm I'm feel like I'm keeping rules better than so-and-so but ah, still not as good as Mother Teresa oh shoot See the biggest problem is comparison is you never know when to stop striving or trying. And the whole rest of Matthew chapter 5 Jesus embarks and pushes into a discussion on deeper obedience and deeper holiness, deeper love for God expressed through specific actions of devotion and obedience. Because the point is that Jesus is making is he's saying I'm actually demanding a deeper obedience of you as my follower, not a disregard for the law. And the reason is the law is deficient. It cannot alone by itself get you where you need to go, into a right relationship with God, into a place where you can live with your guilt forgiven, into a place where shame is dealt with and has no place Piety, right behavior, crossing all of the I's, dotting all of the T's to make God happy with you is completely inadequate, whether you were a Pharisee or a Christian. Because, friends, it's not about the law. It actually is about your heart. Jesus is not upset with the Pharisees for their strict observance of the law. He is upset with them repeatedly for their emphasis on outward conformity to rules without any focus on the heart. Because the problem that Jesus is after here in Matthew chapter 5 is still the core problem of addressing how good is good enough. You see, outwardly obedient people that obey all of the rules but don't have transformed hearts are still eternally lost. Outwardly obedient people without transformed hearts are still lost. And that's because good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And so just like the Pharisees, we can get caught up in focusing on the externals. How are we behaving? How are our children behaving? How are other people around us behaving? How much are they attending church events or not attending church events? How much money are they giving to charity? How much of their time are there? External metrics can only tell us so much. And oftentimes, the challenge with external metrics is when they are wrongly weaponized into legalism, they can become a very effective exercise in missing the point. And the point isn't about a focus on how many or how deep of the behaviors or external rules you get right, the focus Jesus is getting at is how do you enter the kingdom of God if you don't do it by rule-keeping? There's only one way, and it's by faith. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now, God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law, as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets so long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. We are saved by faith. We are not saved by works. The text continues. Can we boast then? That we have done absolutely anything to be accepted by God if we kept all of the rules and lived a good Christian life? No. Because the acquittal of our guilt, our shame, and our sin is not based on keeping the rules and obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. If we emphasize, then he's going to do this thing where he compares the two again and say, if we emphasize faith, is this we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, it's only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. The language that he uses is the exact same language that Jesus used to describe his relationship with the law. So let me leave you with a couple of things to work through. The first one is, if you are here today and you have never made a clear decision to say, I want to enter the kingdom of God, I want to become part of God's family, and you have been trying to do this through rule keeping or church attending or any other mechanism by trying to be a good person, today I want you to hear clearly that you cannot get in through any of those doorways. The doorway that is always open is the doorway of faith, faith in Jesus. And you do that by saying, God, I accept that the only way that I can be made right with you is through with what Jesus did for me, the events that we celebrated last weekend of Easter. So friend, if that's you and you've never made that decision, today is your day. As Ron and the team come, and they're going to lead us in three songs of response which remind us of the depth of gratitude that we have to be thankful for. Our prayer team this morning is Pastor Wally and Sylvia and Dale and Constance. And they're here, and they would love to lead you through that process of coming to understand more fully a process of repentance and faith today. And let me say to you, friends, nothing is more important than getting this right because otherwise you will spend an inordinate amount of time in your life trying to be a good person and prove to God that he should love you instead of simply saying, God, I accept on your own terms the way in which you have provided for me through the cross an expression of your love for me. The other thing I want you to think about and hear is that some of you today may have been around Christianity for a long time. And what can happen is that subtly or not so subtly, we can fall into traps of focusing on externals and just trying to do a good job at being a good Christian. And we can fall into traps of using rule markers to figure out who's in and who's out. And sometimes that leads us to places that are difficult and challenging to look at in our own lives and also in community. And so we need to ask the question of, am I trying to do things and keep rules and use judgments on other people that maybe God is asking me to let go of? You may feel this tug in your heart that you have been trying In certain areas of your life to just get it right and hope that God will somehow love you the one thing that grace reminds us of again and again is to bring us to places of repentance and saying you know what God I recognize yet again that I am wrong about that and you are right and so the doorway is always open of repentance Because the one thing that grace always prompts in our hearts is a response of gratitude of saying, God, I am so grateful that I don't have to get it all right and dot all my I's and cross all my T's in order for you to love me. I don't have to worry about if I'm going to heaven based on good behavior. I want to thank you again today for your mercy and for your forgiveness. Would you give me again a heart to obey you and to walk with you?